And we're going to dive into John. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to grab those. Well, you know, what we've been doing today is kind of a different feel and flavor of church throughout the day. And what's fascinating is if you've never studied history or church history, and a lot of us haven't. Um, in fact, many people call it the evangelical amnesia. Many of us who are involved in churches like ours kind of forget that there's this huge 1,900-year history that kind of rotates back behind us. The church didn't start at a, uh, on a beach in Costa Mesa or something like that, that uh, we have this opportunity to know what God has done throughout the nations. And one of the things about going back there is, is you encounter this kind of culture shock yourself. See, if you go back to the first century church, you encounter a church that didn't gather in large auditoriums, didn't sing songs like we sing songs. They sang here and there, but the predominantly was centered on a time where they sat around and they, in small um, kind of like home group areas. Sometimes larger homes mainly were used, but they had this opportunity to just kind of talk and present the message throughout the entire, you know, the entire Roman world in these small kind of local environments. Now, that would, act, that would open up opportunities to ask questions and deal with the sermon or the conversations of the scriptures, not in sermon basis, but in conversational basis. At the same time, you move forward, suddenly you find the church no longer in small rooms, but in kind of larger temples they'd taken over as the church expanded, or they wound up being down in catacombs and standing amongst all of these tombs of dead people so that they could present the gospel and worship in, in freedom because Rome had been persecuting them for so long. Eventually the persecutions in the Middle Ages come, and next thing you know, no, the church is totally different. Now there are these giant skyscraper-like cathedrals with light shining into them, and, and incense being swung around and statues everywhere and images on the walls and, and big golden grates and you couldn't get to chalices. It's just kind of this, the Bible was chained to the pulpit kind of stuff and you're like, what is going on here? This is a different world. They would actually speak in the Latin or the Greek even if you didn't speak it and there was just kind of this holy kind of mystery about the church. And was that how we were supposed to do church? Men off in monasteries, women off in being um, nuns in their monasteries. It's just this vast different world that kind of falls apart at the Reformation where suddenly now you've got these fiery preachers speaking the language in their own times up in these pulpits on the side of, of the building. And yeah, you sang a hymn here and there, but it was mainly to hear the word of God lip, ripped open and exposed to people. And then it gets to the Americas where suddenly it takes a turn. It's a little bit more colonial. You got these boxes that you sit in and, and you listen to the preacher preach after we all had sung our communal hymn and maybe the congregation had a vote and an argument and then we all had food and because the preacher actually was the local wheel worker or something that he, everybody knew everybody. It was kind of this community feel until you get to the Wild West and then you get kind of the, the, the revivals and you got to have these songs and people are weeping and speaking in tongues and coming forward and sitting in sinners. I mean, just is that how it's supposed to be? Are we supposed to have lights and concerts and are we supposed to sit out under a tree and just kind of worship God because, you know, that's that and listen to the pastor and hang out for nine hours during the day. It, what do we do? I mean, like what was Jesus intending? What did he want for his church? And that's what we're going to look at. What did Jesus want for his church? It's an important question because it seems like the church is so different in so many different ways. We're going to find his answer, though, here in John chapter 17 of what he wanted for the church. So grab your Bible and open it. John chapter 17. We're going to dive in. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from under the seats. You can open it up on page 903 and you'll find where we're at. Now, Jesus 
If you've not been with us in John, I'll give you some context. Jesus has been walking with his disciples now for a little while after he's told them, I'm leaving. I'm on my way to heaven. I'm be with my father. I'm going to leave you guys all alone. I'm going to be with my father in heaven, and I'm going to give you guys this opportunity to, to now know what you're supposed to do. So i got some mic problems. Let's see here. Which one do you want me to grab? Where's my mic, guys? I am tech alone. All right, so we'll just keep going. <laughs> The pastor can run back and do everything. This is why we need volunteers. See, we need you guys to be involved in ministries. So um, we're going to just keep on uh, pushing forward then. Hopefully this thing will, will keep up with us. So as we look at the text, though, what I want you guys to see is Jesus is now turned and he's going to pray to his father. And he's going to ask this question about what the church, or he's going to talk to his father about what the church is supposed to be. So, and he starts with this idea that the church needs to be about not buildings, not time slots, but about a certain kind of person. You see, you and I are the church, not the building, not the time slot on Sunday morning. Not the, not the midweek small group. You are the church. Wherever you go, you're that church. Wherever I go, I am that church. We are all a branch. It's important to note that, that it's not about time slots. It's not about slaps and labels of olive branch and things like that. But right now, we represent the church. We are the church. And so when Jesus talks about what he wants for the church, he talks about what he wants for you. The first thing that we see is that he wants us to see his glory. He wants his church, you and I, to see his glory. Let's look at this. Beginning of verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. They, they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed." I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know that in, know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So a lot of, a lot of words there. Let's sum it down, because there's a couple big terms. The big term there is glorify. See, we, we could talk about the Trinity here. We could talk about how all the vision of um, what it means to be in the church and, and stuff in, in that. But I want to stop here and focus in on the term. He uses glorify multiple times. He says, God, glorify me. I'm here at this hour. It's my time to die on the cross. This is my moment to die here on this cross. I've been living for this hour. Now, glorify me as I glorify you. And, and that sounds so arrogant, doesn't it? God, Make me famous. Make me amazing on the cross. I want everybody to know who I am. Check me out. And that's how we can hear it as Americans, being so self, um, I don't know, what is, we need to be so self-fulfilled and, and feel so good about ourselves that it sounds like he's like, God, I got this really small self-esteem and I'm, if I'm going to die on the cross, will you make me really big like you? Because I, I really have this emptiness inside my soul. And that's not, it, that's not it at all. God doesn't need to be puffed up. He doesn't need our worship. And sometimes it sounds like that. It sounds like God's like, well, I need you guys to worship me. God, I need you to make me bigger. And that's not what he's getting at. 
In fact, what he wants to do is he wants to declare and show his character and his work in the world. He wants us to see him for who he truly is. And that will bring out a spontaneous desire to see his glory and to know his glory. Let me give you an example. How many of you guys have been to Yosemite? Anybody been here? To, been, I, we just got to go as a family last year. I'd been a few years since I'd been, and I was a little kid last time. And so here is this picture of this glory of God in my mind. We actually got in, we got to camp up at this place called Crane Flats, got in our cars, start driving down that long, windy road on our way into the valley. Go through the two tunnels, and as you come out the second tunnel, you begin to see off in the distance, you see the big old half dome coming up and the two sides of the valley kind of growing deep deeper and deeper as you're crawling down that wall. And as you get closer to the bottom of that wall, it all opens up into all these vistas and beauties and waterfalls and, and colors. And I'm, of course, driving the van with the kids going like, wow. My wife's like, look at the road. And it's like, I got to stay focused because it was just grabbing me. So we finally pull over to just stop. You just have to stop and take it in. Just look and see the vistas and something in your heart moves. Something inside of you just is overwhelmed by the sight of it. The, small, the size, and you feel so small, and yet it seems so grand. It seems so amazing. And you know, what we both noted is how humble it all is. You know, it's not like El Capitan's, they're going, check me out, I'm El Capitan. You know, it's not like it doesn't do that, it's a rock. And yet it screams at you, look at me, look at the beauty, look at the view. And your soul just says, even if you don't believe in God, there's a sense that something out of you just goes, oh my God. Do you know that's why they have museums? You see, they set up pictures in museums, paintings and artworks in museums, because the goal was when you encountered one of these paintings, these works of art, the same emotional set came over you. You were in awe at the brushstrokes. You were amazed that this sight could be seen. Look at how real it looks. Is that, is that a photo? It's not a photo. What is this? And you're amazed at what you're looking at. And the reason it amazes you is because um, the beauty of what you're staring at, the skill at which it was put together. And that's why it's there for you to muse upon. That's why it's called a museum. As you're staring at that, you're not actually contemplating the actual piece of art. You're contemplating the artist who made it. No wonder when we stare at the wonder of a valley like Yosemite, you can't help but go, wow, who made this? Can you, in the incredible power, the beauty, the wonder you look at the Grand Canyon, you look at the universe, the stars, there's a sense of awe and wonder that comes about. And it's not yelling at you, worship me. The same thing is true with God. He doesn't need us to worship him. It just spontaneously occurs. There's nothing hollow inside of him. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Way before we made anything, I was already glorious. And Jesus in his humility with all the glory of God stripped it down, stepped into this world as a human being and began to care and minister. Now he was going to die. He was going to be exalted and given back that glory he had before he was Jesus. This is the Trinity talking within itself. The Son speaking to the Father. And in this conversation, they're talking about their church. You see, they're not afraid to say, hey, glorify me, because it's not, because he's going, I am amazed by you, and what we're going to do on the cross needs to be amazing, and everybody should see it and be overwhelmed, and if we're the church, 
You haven't understood the cross if it doesn't blow you away yet. And some of it is because it's so familiar to us. You see, let's stop here for a minute. How many of you guys would say God is, is loving? I mean, I, I, I think all of us in this room would be like, yeah, God's loving. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I haven't met anybody in this world, um, secular or, or Christian or, or any other group, anybody in America that wouldn't say God is loving. Would you? I mean, have we really met anybody who says, nah, God's not loving. No, I, uh, if they don't believe in God, even people who don't believe in God, they say, well, you believe in a God who's loving, right? Where in the world did we get that idea? Stop and think about it for a minute. Say you and I are capital venture people and we decide, yeah, I've got a great idea. I've got a lot of money. Let's set up a bunch of mobile homes in the Midwest on a plane somewhere. And then we are guaranteed a tornado will rip through it within the next three years to destroy that place. Isn't it true that it seems like tornadoes always seem to find the mobile home park and just tear the place apart? Or, or, or even better, let's, let's set up on the East Coast somewhere and let's just hope we never have a hurricane happen. Yeah, right. Hurricanes are a way of life on the East Coast. If you're anywhere near the Atlantic Ocean, there's going to be a hurricane. If you're living in California, you're going to have an earthquake. You're going to experience it. If you're living out in the woods, you're going to meet bears and run into mountain lions and have all kinds of fun stuff to deal with. If you're living down South America, you're going to have a, a crazy time with the Amazon jungle. I mean, enjoy yourself. You live in, in Australia, don't go swimming with, the, with anything. It kills you. If you live in the urban jungle, be careful because there are human beings living there and they're vicious and cruel. What's up with this world? If I looked around at this world and saw all the natural disasters and all the ways that we could die and all the diseases, where in the world am I getting the idea that the one that created this place loves us? Last time I checked, the Greeks had a better idea. The Romans, yeah, the gods don't care about us. They love just messing with us. Poseidon brings the waves and Zeus shoots us with lightning and fire and earthquakes and this is ridiculous. Of course, they've, they've got it right. This world's set up against us. We're dying all the time by the world we're supposed to be in. Where do we get the idea that God is loving, let alone just? You know, I don't know too many people don't think God shouldn't be a just God and make things, do things right. Except, look around, how much evil that's going to happen today is going to be ignored and never dealt with, apparently. And it seems like all of those crimes that have happened in World War I and World War II, how many people got away with it? How many cold cases are being put on a shelf across the United States? How much evil needs to be gotten away with before we start saying, wait a minute, I don't know if it's God's good or not, but maybe he's good, but maybe he's just not just, maybe he likes us, maybe he's playing with us. What is this mess? Why do you all think that God is loving and just? We think that because of the cross. It is a purely Christian thing to think God is loving and just. It is purely... And clear in the Old Testament that he says these things, but it's at the cross where he says, glorify me. Let's manifest the glory here of who we really are. You want to see what God is like? You go to the cross and the cross is like a Yosemite. When you approach it, at first it looks like something. The nearer you gather and the more you see your sin and the greater you see the increase of the cross, the more you realize that he took our bludgeoning evil and he took every blow we could deliver and used every single blow to flip it to our salvation, that he used our very rebellion to bring us to a place where we no longer could be rebels because he, we saw that he loved us, though we hated him, 
that he paid for the sins, though we ought to have been punished. He becomes perfectly just, perfectly loving, all-powerful and glorious, yet so humble. And it's like he's the greatest comeback in the world. It's like you've watched this game. Loser, 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 loser. Last five minutes, they win the whole thing. As a human being, we celebrate people playing with pigskins when they come back and win. And here God comes back and wins the value for all of us at the cross. And it's to call us to be amazed at his glory, to be astounded. And so we gather together to do what? To learn more about that glory, to once again be captured by it, to drive down the valley of his cross, to stare at the beauty and the hue and the glory of what God has done for us, though we didn't even deserve it. He wants his church to see his glory. When it arrests your heart, it captures your mind, it becomes the very thing that you have to sing and celebrate in life. Amen? And if you haven't experienced that, I pray that you begin to meditate on that thought and begin to grow in that knowledge that God would reveal to you the amazing fascination and wonder of his death and resurrection. Now, he doesn't just want us to stare at it, though. He wants us to know him. He doesn't want us just to go like, oh, that's pretty cool. And if God bores you, you better go just go do something else. But because he, he wants to capture your heart so that we can begin to know him. His goal is to track you in so you can sit down and meet with him. Notice what it says in verse 3. And this is eternal life, to live forever. Is that what it says? No. It actually says that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The goal of eternal life and what it is, is not to have life forever in heaven. That's not the goal. If you thought the goal was to be a good person and, and be sinless and be a part of some good institution somewhere, that's no, no. It is to know God. It is to have a relationship with him. This word know here has been used multiple times throughout the Bible to imply how we make children. Intimacy, nearness, so close you know them, so well you know the person to the person. And here God is saying, this is eternal life that you know me, that the spirit of God would dwell in you that the word of God would be alive to you. You see, there's three ways we really should begin to grow in that knowledge. First is the mind. Guys, yeah, we need to know the right things about God. There are lots of false things to know about God. And I love to challenge people with those questions like, where did you get that idea from? Where'd you come up with that idea about God? Because you, didn't, you, you got it from somewhere you, or you made it up. And I don't think making up things about God's a smart idea, just so you know. But we get these ideas from somewhere and the Bible tells us about who God is. We ought to know this and understand this and have right thoughts about God. Now, that means knowing the Bible. That means knowing theology. That means understanding who God is and being able to share that with other people so that it's in your mind. Now, that's not to become arrogant. I mean, we all know people who know so much theology, they're arrogant. In fact, when I asked that question at second service, Brent raised his hand pointing at me. So, uh, that hurt. But the... Uh, but that needs to move your heart. There's head, there's heart, and there's hands. The second movement needs to be to your heart. If you know these things about God, don't just store them up there. They ought to motivate your soul. They ought to stir you up. Hey, I meet guys who get more passionate about the Dodgers or about the angels than they do about God. 
They get passionate about their team. They get passionate about their things because their knowledge has motivated them. Is God motivating us? Is the knowledge of this cross and the wonder of what God has done for you to set you free from hell and sin enabled you to be wondered, wonder at God and who he is and what he's made you for? Or has it become, we just know so little, we don't have those motivations. But some of you guys, you're emotional. You're like, yes, I love God. But do you think rightly about God? I know some of us, we're, we get passionate about statements that were made. Like, and, and sometimes I'll see people sing songs and they're just passionate about it. I'm like, you know, that song's like speaking heresy. No, it just means so much to me. No, it's, that's great. There are right thoughts, there are right emotions, and there are right actions. And when we have those right thoughts motivating our hearts in the right way, our hands get engaged in the right way, and we start to love as Jesus loved, and we start to care as Jesus cared, and we start to act as Jesus acted. And that's when you really learn. That's when it really becomes true for you because you know it and you feel it, but now you see that it's real. And so these three things work together. I'll give you an example of how this works out from the Word. The other day I was hanging out with a friend of mine, and he, he wanted to talk through a text in Proverbs, like this obscure little proverb. And he's like, I really want to know if I'm using it right. He's a, in the financial industry, and so he's training people. And so he pulls this text out, and it's about like keeping, care, keeping close care of your flocks and making sure that all this is because your riches are going to vanish and stuff like that. And so we were explaining what it meant in that time period and how it applies to today. And I'm, as we're going through the text... I'm watching him get more and more excited that he's been studying it right and he gets it and he's all pumped up. And as he's getting more excited, I'm getting more convicted because I'm reading this thing going like, I need to know my finances better. This is, I'm not doing well on this one. This is, and so it's gone from head knowledge immediately to, oh, I need to do something. Now, I, I still need to do something. I still need to get engaged. But that's how learning and knowing God works. You learn something about who he is and what he longs for us to be like. It motivates us so that we act. And this happens daily, daily, daily as you connect with Jesus Christ in the word. And so he wants us to know him so that we can imitate him. One of my sons hates being imitated. Do you have any kids like that? You know, you have, if you have multiple kids, one kid always manages to find something fun to do, and the other kid goes like, ooh, I want to try that, and they come over and they start doing it, and the first kid goes like, he's copying me. God loves it when you copy him. He never gets mad at you and says, you're copying me. He wants you to copy him. He made you to copy him. He made you to be creative like he's creative. He made you to love like he loves. He's made you to care about justice like he cares about it. He's made you to be you and to copy him. That's to be in his image. And so this isn't just knowing, this is becoming. And so that, that becoming fits in and begins to build out in us making him known making him come out. The way we talk about that here is to love, live, and share Christ wherever we go. And that's exactly what Jesus gets into. He sends us on this mission to love, live, and share him wherever we go. And so he wants us to make him known to the world as we pick it back up in verse 9. I'm praying for them, Jesus says. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He's speaking here about the apostles, but you go, well, why are we applying it to us? Where your leadership goes is where we go. So he's saying, I want the leadership to display this. In fact, in verse 20, he'll say, I don't ask for these only, but also, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. He wants us to be like the apostles. He wants us all to be on the same page. And so Jesus says, hey guys, here's what I want for you now. 
I want all are mine, mine, yours are mine. He talks about how this intimate connection, that they're glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to keep them in the mission. I want to keep them in, the, in my name. I've left them here in the world for them to be engaged in the mission of making me known. See, this is why he's, he's sent us. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, he says, so I sent them. Guys, we've been sent into the world. You and I have been sent like Jesus was sent. Jesus was sent to make God known. We have now been sent out to make God known. You see, you're the church. Church doesn't happen in a time slot on Sunday. It doesn't happen in the building. You are the church, and wherever you go, there's the church. Wherever you find yourself, there is the mission of Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait for the pastor. You don't have to wait for an organized effort by the church people here, by the ministers. No, you're the church. You step into this world and you engage it. Notice that Jesus says we're in this world. We're here, locally and globally, so we can make a difference. In fact, one of the people in our church has done that. And I love Bernie. Bernie's awesome. And some of you know Bernie. But Bernie got to go out to visit her sister the other day, um, a week ago. She told me I could share this story. And I was just so proud of her because she's just like, I'm trying to apply what we're learning. And so she meets up with her sister and her sister is sitting there and goes, hey, I, I met this guy at my work. Her sister's a nurse. And, and the nurse said, got to, his sister got to know another man that she works with. And this man has a partner who is dying. And so they go, she goes, I really feel this burden, not for the guy at my work, but for his partner who's dying out, out in this place, out in the desert. So his, Bernie's sister says, we need to go see this guy. And Bernie's like, well, okay. You know, so visiting sis, they get in the car, they drive way out into the desert, come to this hospital, walk in, and, and they meet this guy. He's got tubes coming out. He looks horrible. He is obviously not doing well. And Bernie and her sister walk up to the bedside and the sister goes, you've been on my heart for weeks ever since I met your, your partner back there at, at my work. And, and the guy goes, oh, you guys, I've been praying God would send somebody. And she's like, oh, that's, that's cool. And so the, Bernie's sister says, oh, wow, that, that's great. Well, my sister Bernie here believes in God really well. So she's going to tell you all about him. She just throws her under the bus, right? And so Bernie's like, okay, here we go. So she dives in and she starts telling him, look, do you know God? Yes, I do. Or do you believe in God? Yes, I do. Do you know who Jesus is? Well, I learned about him when I was a kid when my grandparents took me to church here and there. She's like, listen, Jesus loves you and, you've, and we've all done things wrong. He wants to forgive us. He's like, oh, you don't know what I've done. She's like, you don't know what I've done. <laughs> and he smiles and then she leads him through the gospel just as we've been doing at church for all these years. And the man starts bawling and receives Christ right there on the bedside. She reconnects with him one other time and leaves. He died 10 days later. But this is somebody who is listening carefully and understanding the mission of the church doesn't exist inside the four walls of a building. But it's out there wherever you go. It's meeting that, that co-worker 
and caring about who they care about. It's connecting with the people around you on your street, in your neighborhood. Not to, not to fly a red flag about something, but to go find out why is your grass dying? Are you okay? Can I do something to help? As what we see is the opportunity to live this out locally and globally. We see these guys, they're all, Scott and Casey, taken off globally. These kids taken off globally to bring the same message that you and I are called to bring locally. And it's the same idea. It goes outside. But that means we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Look at how Jesus continues on. I give, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So he's got us in the world, but he doesn't want us to be of the world. That means it's not about us gathering together to stay away from the big, bad, evil world. Let's build some monasteries and, and just hide. Let's all, let's all make sure we all huddle up and, and stay nice and safe. That's not what God did. He left you in the world. He left you in your workplace, on your street, in your school. He's left you in this world to make a difference. He's left you at your own, in your own home with your own skills. Some of you are retired. Some of you haven't started working yet. God has given you skills and giftedness to still use in this world. He's left you in this world for this time to do his mission. And that means not just preaching the gospel, guys. That means applying the gospel to whatever you're doing. Some of you have a vision to write and you're a good writer, but you haven't done it yet. Why? You put it away a long time ago. Pick it back up for God's glory. I'm tired of 80s movies that were bad the first time being remade. Where are the great storytellers? They're in the church. We've got the imagination, the creativity that God has loaned us in his image. He wants you to apply that. He wants you to tell those stories. He wants you to get out there and bring that news and love those people. That doesn't mean we turn every, every television show and movie presentation to a gospel presentation. No, that means we build a beautiful world of culture engaging in good news and creating wonderful opportunities to make a difference in business. Join business ventures because it serves other people. Become generous, make tons of money and make sure everybody under you makes tons of money. Be generous and Christian. Cap yourself knowing that you can expand the glory and the beauty of Christ through other people. You're not capped. God enabled you and left you here to not live like the world, to make business decisions like the world, to act like the world does when it comes to culture and to write scripts like the world does. No, he gave you this world to engage with the skills that you have and the giftedness that you have to pour into your children as Christ would call you to pour into your children. To give you the opportunity to have baseball teams as Christ would call you to coach the baseball team. And he's brought you in this world, not so we can act like the world, even when we're watching the baseball game. Don't act like the world. You know what I'm talking about, all you baseball families. It can get brutal out there. How can we be salt and light in those places? Because it's what he's called us to be in the world, but not of it. Now, don't think you're alone. Jesus prepped you for this. You don't have to be like, I need to go do all this stuff and get an education. No, no, he has already given you what you need. Notice how he puts it. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You say, what? 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 Sanctify, why are we suddenly getting into like, 
being holy and, and making sure we don't sin. Well, we get this. Sanctify has been used to tell you you need to be perfect. Never sin. You, bat, you need to be a holy saints. Yes, we need to be holy saints. Let's, let's help the word out a little bit. Sanctify was the term that's used when they would take a utensil in the Old Testament. They would clean it off. They would sprinkle blood on it. They would pray and they would put it aside to be used by God in his temple or in his tabernacle. That instrument was now holy used only for the Lord. When it is not used for the Lord, you're sinning. When I don't obey what God tells me to do, that's called sin. When I do what God tells me to do, that's called being holy. See how that works? He's taken you and he's washed you clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's taken your skills. He's taken your abilities. He's taken your education. He's taken your life experiences. He's washed them up and he said, I put them here used by me. I'm setting you apart. How does he set you apart? How does he set you different from the world? He does it through his truth. And he says, your word is truth. Guys, this Bible is the most powerful term to change us, to shape us, to empower us us to live in this world. If you're gaining your cultural, if you're gaining your cues and your information and your guidance from the culture, getting it from the wrong source, this book gives you the information to live godly lives for God, to be used by God, to make a difference in this world, whether that be in the culture of Hollywood, in the culture of business, in the home, in education, in government, wherever you find yourself, you have this book to give you everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. He didn't leave you unprepared. He gave you his word, he gave you his spirit, and he gave you himself. See, he goes on to say that he prepped us in another way. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and that for their sake I consecrate myself. I set myself apart that they may also be sanctified in truth, set apart in truth. Well, how does this work? He says, I set myself apart as a lamb. Now, in the Old Testament, when you set a lamb apart, it was to be used in a sacrifice. Why? So that that lamb could take and remove sin for others. To prep that priest or that person to do the work of God. What Jesus is saying here is, I died on the cross so you guys can do the work. I am setting myself apart on the cross so you can be set apart for bringing this mission to the globe. To your work. To your neighbors. To your friends to your 4th of July party, whatever it is. God has granted you his presence because Jesus has borne your sins away on the cross. He's prepped you, given you all you need to make as many mistakes as possible to get the message of Jesus Christ to a world that doesn't have anything permanent. You know why the word's important? Because it doesn't change. Those websites are gonna change. Those, those apps are going to change. The, the technology is going to change, but the word of God is going to stand the same forever. And it gives you that firm foundation upon which to make decisions and not a shifting cultural sand. Now, he wants us to see his glory. He wants us to know him intimately. He wants us to be on that mission, but finally, he wants us to be unified. He wants us to be connected to each other. Jesus closes his prayer to the Father out in this way. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. 
that they may be in us, so that in the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And in them, you and you and me, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And so Jesus right there says, says it over and over again. I want them to be one. I want them to be one. Why? Because I want my love amongst them. I want them to be one like we're one. One on mission, one in love. That starts in the church. That starts in Olive Branch. That begins where we care about each other. It starts in your small group, actually. In your small group, I hope that you're finding support. Somebody who's caring about you. Somebody at your Bible study who knows your problems and is supporting you. It's willing to pull out a pocketbook and pay for something when you can't afford it. That we're caring and supporting one another. Because that's what this is about. This love of each other to support and care for one another starts in the church. Starts between the different services. Because if it doesn't happen here and we keep caring for everybody out there and paying for everybody else's needs out there, what are we telling everybody? Bad idea. If you're in the church, be outside. They care about you out there. Once you get in here, we ignore you. No, that's not the goal. We don't want to ignore anybody. We want to care for one another's needs. Bring each other into unity. Challenge each other with the truth. Pull each other into line. That's all of us together. Not me. I'm not the church. We're the church. It's not this apparatus of elders and leadership. We are the church. You're the church. And we're to be unified together. You go, what about all the denominations? We've covered that. You can go back to our last series, the second week in our last series. We cover that fact about all the different denominations and what that means. And summed up simply as this, we're unified in the gospel. The gospel allows for a broad diversity, but once you abandon the gospel, you're not a church. The church makes the gospel, or sorry, the gospel makes the church. The church accepts and preaches that gospel. That's what we're here for. And so when we understand the gospel central, that's what changes everything. You see, when I go somewhere and I meet a real Christian, a fellow Christian, you know what's awesome is I just ask them the simple question. Hey, and there's a missionary who taught me this, and if I've got the guts, I'll say, hey, when did you realize you're going to hell? Church, when did you realize you were, you were destined to hell and needed a Savior? Because if you haven't realized that you're destined to hell and you're needing a Savior, you may not be a Christian. Every Christian knows they were destined to hell. Every Christian knows they need a Savior and they receive Jesus Christ to bear their hell for them. And it's when I hear that they go, oh, it was this date and this was when I received Jesus. Man, there's this bond with Christians when I was in Thailand and I met those Christians, it was like immediate connection because we had the same spirit and the same truths. There's a unity that is global. There's a unity that pulls us all together. You see, I love the United States. I love this country. He loves Thailand. But we both love the U.S. and I, I, I love the U.S. and he loves Thailand because we love Jesus Christ. It's out of our love of Christ that we love our country. And we long for the best of it. And that's why I can be united with a man who may be in a country that what our countries would consider each other enemies in some cases. But I would be united to them because we love Christ. That is the one thing that will unite this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It brings us under the banner of Jesus and his kingdom and enables us then to live. And so what we have is honestly this opportunity to be united. It exists in this world. And we need to live that out, praying for each other, supporting each other, caring for each other. And so Jesus sums all this up very simply. He just says it, he says it straight. 
At the very end of his prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be, where, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And I want them to see my glory. I want them to know my glory. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you've sent me and I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known. We know God and we share that knowledge of God. And he ends with this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them, that there would be a unity. What does Jesus want for his church? What does he want for you and me? He wants us to see his glory. He wants us to know him intimately and he wants us then to share that in this world and do it in love, united together. God has gifted you with so much and prepared you with everything you need. I pray he will use you mightily in the local and in the global world. Let's pray. God, I just ask that you would help and enable us to live out what you've given to us in your word. There's just so much here, Lord. There's so much that you've given to us, so much opportunity because we are people who you've left in this world. We are people who've been given your gospel, given your spirit, given your word, set apart for this task. There's nothing that we lack in order to accomplish what you've called us to do. Help us then to be in this world, but not of it. Help us to be people of the word and people set apart by your gospel. And then unify us together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.